And we are returning to our sermon series where we are going book by book through the Bible. We started in the book of Genesis. Today we are in the book of Ezra. And as we look at each book, we're asking the question, what's the main point of this book? And then what does that teach us about God the King and His kingdom? We're calling this series, Your Kingdom Come, because I believe the central theme of the Bible is this theme of God as King and His expectation as the King that we come under His rule. And the good news is the Bible also teaches if we do, it'll be for our good and for our benefit, and it will be for His glory. And so it's a win-win. But today, as we look at the book of Ezra, we're going to see the faithfulness of God the King, and then we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to respond faithfully to Him, since He's faithful to us. So I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand in the, for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Ezra 1, verses 1 through 5. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired Word of God. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your continued blessing on us as we continue to go through the Bible book by book. I pray you would stir our spirit this morning so that we respond with faithful worship and faithful living so that you are made known as the great King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want us to begin by talking about our faithful God. And the book of Ezra continues where Second Chronicles left off. For those of you who were with us several weeks ago, we looked at Second Chronicles and we said uh, God's people have been conquered by Babylon and many of them have been exiled and removed and taken to Babylon. And then all of a sudden Persia becomes the new power over Babylon and the new Persian king rises named Cyrus and Cyrus issues this decree which says that all of God's people can return back to their home. And, and the last verses of Second Chronicles are verbatim the same verses as the beginning of Ezra, which is kind of interesting. But it's basically Cyrus issuing this decree that God's people can return. And interestingly, it mentions Jeremiah the prophet in verse 1. It says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So the book of Ezra is telling us that the Lord said this would happen. In other words, God's in control. He knew it would happen. He said this would happen. And he said it by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now, where did Jeremiah mention this? Uh, A lot of people believe Jeremiah references this in chapter 29, verses 10 to 11, which says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... 
I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. You know this verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So Jeremiah talks about in the future a 70-year captivity of God's people in Babylon. And now Ezra is telling us that's what's happening here with Cyrus the king allowing God's people after a 70-year exile in Babylon to return And I want you to notice that Cyrus doesn't just say, I'm allowing you to go back. This isn't even initiated by God's people. This is initiated by Cyrus, a pagan king who seemingly has no interest at all. And yet he's like telling God's people, you guys need to leave and you need to go back home and you need to build a temple. And he says, anybody else who gets in your way, they're going to be punished. And he refers to God as Yahweh. And, he, and he, he, he says, he recognizes he only has authority because God's given him this authority. And you say, oh my goodness, this guy sounds like he has more faith than just about anybody else in the Bible. He's a Persian pagan king. How do you explain that? I'll tell you how you explain it. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the Lord stirred up his spirit. God did it. It's a miracle. You know, God changed his heart so that he said this and thought this. And God is in control. That's the point. God is in control, and here's even better news. God is faithful to His people and His promises and His plans. And in chapter 2, the exiles return, and we have a list of their names. And this happens in, in the year 537 B.C., and they immediately begin rebuilding. In chapter 3, they rebuild the altar, they rebuild the temple. In chapter 4, there's opposition. There's a group that opposes this. And the project gets put on hold for 16 years. 16 years of no building. And during this time, a new leader of Persia rises named Darius. And the opposition goes to Darius and says to him, you know, this group is over here building a temple and they seem to be gaining some power and authority and and it's not going to be good for you. You need to come stomp them out. And Darius says, well, let me look into it and research it a little bit and think about it. And he comes back and he issues his his decree. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. We see his decree, which, by the way, is going to be very similar to Cyrus. Chapter 6, verse 12. Darius, the new Persian king, says, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. He takes a very strong position in favor of God's people, similar to Cyrus. And I want you to notice, he might not have taken this strong a position if it wasn't for the opposition. It's the opposition who comes along trying to oppose God's people who go to Darius who cause him to even think about this issue. And when he thinks about the issue, he comes back even stronger in favor of God's people. I just want you to see the sovereignty of God. He's in control. He's orchestrating things for the sake of his people. He can change the heart of pagan kings. Look at chapter 6, verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. The pagan king aided God's people in the work of house of God, the God of Israel. God's the one who turns hearts, changes hearts. He did it with Cyrus. He did it with Darius. And by the way, the temple is going to get rebuilt in 516 B.C., which is 20 years from when the decree, initial decree went out. So there's a 20-year 
hiatus, a 20-year period there. And then in the book, it fast-forwards 58 years. So in the book, there's a fast-forwarding that happens to chapter 7 when Ezra arrives on the scene. Ezra is a scribe, a religious leader. He arrives on the scene, and, and he talks about the faithfulness of God. Look at chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. He says, God put this idea into the heart of the king. And he says, God was with me. And the point is this, God is in control. There's no other explanation here for how these things could happen or why these things would happen. God's in control and he uses his control to, to, to be faithful to his people, to his plans, to his promises. Now, I want you to consider that from the people's perspective, they might not have seen or felt the faithfulness of God in the midst of it all. You know, if you were one of the ones living in Jerusalem when it got ransacked by Babylon, if you were the one of ones who died or your loved ones died in the midst of that, you might not be talking about the faithfulness of God in the midst of that. Or if you were one of the ones who were exiled to Babylon and during that 70-year period, you became sick, you died, you were mistreated, your loved ones were mistreated, you wouldn't be going, wow, look at the hand of God, look at the faithfulness of God in all of this. You'd be saying, where are you? If you were one of the ones who got returned, who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild, and the project gets put on hold for 20 years, and in the midst of that, you know, you die, your family dies, you wouldn't be looking around going, wow, look at God's hand in all of this. Now, you and I can. We can look back and we can see the sovereignty of God, the hand of God, the faithfulness of God, and we can say, wow, we can see it. From the perspective of God's people, it's not always so clear. And sometimes we just need to be reminded, whether we see it or not, whether you feel it or not, we just need to be reminded of, of truth and the truth and the, the, the God's perspective. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's on His throne. And He's faithful. And He will do what He said. He will accomplish His plans and His purposes for His people. We were visiting a family over the holidays, and we were there for uh, almost two weeks. And, you know, there's a lot of good that comes with that. There's also some downside to living out of a suitcase and, you know, not sleeping real well and kids staying up later than they're accustomed to staying up and still waking up at the same time in the morning. And, you know, eating, of course, we ate a lot, you know, dessert seemed like every meal, breakfast and then dessert and then lunch and then dessert, dinner and then dessert, <laughs> and then maybe another dessert after the dessert. And, you know, for a while, that's nice and fun and great. But at some point, it's like, okay, you know, I need to start eating salad for about a month now. And we were driving back, and we were telling our kids, you know, we're letting them know, like, this has been vacation, and that's fine. During vacation, you can stay up late, eat junk. You know, it's kind of a part of it. But now, like, we, we want to let you know. We want to remind you we're going back to normalcy. You know, we're going to go back to normal sleeping times. And we're going to go to bed at reasonable times. And we're not going to eat junk all the time. And, you know, it was almost like we were telling them we're about to go to boot camp. You know? <laughs> oh, oh. You know, the idea of, you know, staying up late, eating what you want, vacation, like that sounds fun. And, you know, they, they needed a little parental wisdom, a little parental perspective. Like, this is okay for a period, for a season. 
But, but what we normally need is good health routines and eating and sleeping and that kind of thing. Sometimes you just need to be reminded from the truth from a bigger perspective. And, and that's what we're reminded here this morning. And I think the start of a new year is a great time to be reminded. God is in control. He's sovereign. He can change the heart of a pagan king to accomplish his purposes. And he's done it. And he'll do it again. Right? And we, we may be tempted to look at the landscape and say, oh, no. You know, we see so much evil, and how's good possibly going to triumph? And how's this possibly going to work out for good? We just can't see it, just can't imagine it. And it's just good to be reminded, hey, God's in control. He's on the throne. And as he says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. We can look back and see how he's faithful. And we can trust he's going to be faithful to us. Right? Now, what, what, what kind of promises can we cling to? What kind of promises do we have that He's made to us? One that came to my mind as I was thinking through this is Romans 8.28. He works all things together for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. He's working all things together for good. Now from our perspective, we may not see that. How is He doing that? We often don't see it. I, from their perspective, you know, it, it, he, the way he did it is he used Babylon to judge his people, and then he raised up Persia and changed the heart of the Persian king. I don't think any of God's people would have come up with that. I don't think any of God's people would have said, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. Really? That's the plan? God's ways are different than our ways. And it's good for us to remember, we probably don't know exactly how God's going to do it. We know he's going to. We're just called to trust he's going to be faithful. We don't know exactly how and it's all, how it's all going to work out. We also don't know the timing. When? When do we get to see the faithfulness? I'm sure if you told God's people, well, it's going to be 70 years in Babylon, and then you're going to have to leave, but then it's going to be 20 years of rebuilding. 90 years? I mean, that's like 90 years? Can, can we do it in a week, maybe? A month? I'm pretty patient. A year? 90 years? Like, I may not be alive to see that. The faithfulness of God, but you're dead. Sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes we don't live to see how it exactly all works out. But God's people are those people who can say, I still trust. He's the king. He's on the throne. He's in control. And he's faithful. He's faithful in all things, to his people, to his plans, to his promises. And I I hope that at the beginning of a new year, it's a good reminder. God is faithful. And when we believe that he's faithful guess what that will result in? It will result in us living a certain way, responding a certain way. And I want to highlight two ways that God's people are faithful. We, we get this from the book of Ezra. I didn't just kind of make these up. I got them directly from Ezra. This is what it looks like for God's people to be faithful in response to His faithfulness. We're going to look at a couple this week, and we'll look at a couple next week when we look at the book of Nehemiah. First of all, God's people respond with faithful worship when they see and believe and trust in the faithfulness of God. Let's talk about faithful worship. Worship is a major theme of this book, just like worship was a major theme of Second Chronicles. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. This decree that Cyrus makes for God's people to return. Chapter 1, verse 2. Cyrus says, He has charged me. God has charged me, Cyrus says, to build him a house at Jerusalem. It's about building a house. That's the charge. That's what's important. Building a house. And then in verse 3 and then in verse 5, it goes on to repeat this phrase, rebuild the house of the Lord. So the emphasis 
on returning to the land is not just simply return to the land so you can have the land. The emphasis is return to the land so that you can build this house. And what is the house? It's the temple. And what's significant about the temple? It's the place of worship. It's the prescribed place for God's people to worship during this time. And so the emphasis on returning is returning so that they can worship. And notice in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, the first thing they do, priority number one, is what? Rebuild the altar. The altar takes priority over the temple. Why? The altar is where the sacrifices happen. The sacrifice is a key component of the worship. Priority number one, we've got to build an altar. Before we start building houses, before we start building a temple even, we need an altar. Why? That's where the sacrifice happens. That's where the worship happens. It's all about worship. And as soon as they build the altar, they start working on the temple. Look at, look at, look at uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. talks about this. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They built the altar, they built the foundation, they established the priesthood with the vestments and the clothing and the instruments, and they start praising God. I love this phrase in verse 10, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. They looked to God's word to decide how they should worship and what they should do. They didn't just sort of get creative. What do you think we ought to do? Anybody have a good song to sing? Anybody have a fog machine that works? No? Anybody got any good ideas of what we should do in worship? No. They looked to God's word. What does God's word say? They, 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 they worshiped according to the prescription of God's word. What does God's word say we're supposed to do and not do in worship? This is what drove their worship. Keep reading with me. Look at verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So they begin to worship. There's great joy, but there's also weeping that's mixed with the joy. Why are they weeping? I think it's possible there's several answers. I think one answer is some of them remember the good old days, the glory, and they wept because they said, boy, we just can't see how it's ever going to be like it was. The good old days. You know, sometimes we look to the good old days. It's just not like it used to be. And they wept. I think it's also possible that they looked back and realized the waste of the past hundred years. Like we didn't have to be like this. We didn't have to be here in this situation if we had just been faithful like we were supposed to be. Things would have never, we never would have had to take that hundred year detour through Babylon and exile and return. In chapter 9, verse 9, they refer to themselves as slaves. They're still slaves. They're still under the thumb of a foreign nation. It hadn't always been like that. It wasn't like that under King David. It wasn't like that under King Solomon. Right? They weren't under the thumb of some other nation. They know they are. They feel that. And so they're worshiping, but there's also a sadness. There's also tears. There's weeping. And I think there's a good principle for us here today as we worship. 
I think we worship with joy, absolutely, but there's also a little tear in the eye as we worship because we live in a fallen world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. And it won't always be like this. One day we will worship and the Lord will wipe away the tears from our eye and it'll be solely joy. But until then, we worship, but even in our worship, there's still a tear here or there. Why? Because we come here with aches and pains. We come here with baggage and the pain of the past week. We come here with longings. Wanting things to be different. Wanting things to be better. We come here longing things to be the way they're supposed to be. Be the way they used to be. And that's a part of living in a fallen world. There's always a tear. And so our worship today, we can worship knowing that the tears won't always be there. And that's where the joy is found. The joy is found in knowing the tears will not always be there. One day they'll be wiped away. But when we worship, there's joy, absolutely. There better be. But the reality is there's also a tear because of the nature of the world that we live in. But the main point I want you to see here, God is faithful to restore His people, but why? It's not just about the land. He's faithful to restore His people to the land so that they can worship. The purpose is worship. God the King redeems a people. Why? So that the people will serve Him and worship Him. That's the whole point. When God delivers His people from Egypt, what's step one? Go to the mountain to meet with me, to serve me, to worship me. It's about worship. That's why the king redeems in the first place. To worship. That's why God provided the land in the first place. So that they would set up this city and this temple and, the, and there would be a prescription for the worship so that God's people would worship Him. That's why even through an exile, He brings them back. And what's the purpose? Worship. Priority number one, set up an altar. It's about Worship, And I think it's good to be reminded sometimes the priority, priorities in life. What really matters? And we're reminded from Ezra, what really matters? Priority number one, you might say, is worship. This past Monday night, we had Monday night football on to TV. We weren't really watching it. It was just kind of in the background. And uh, I happened to look up and noticed it looked really strange. All of these players are just standing on the field. And I thought, they just don't normally see this. So I turned the volume up and realized uh, what now you probably have heard about. There was a player who was seriously injured, Damar Hamlin. Uh, we now know he had a cardiac arrest. They had to perform CPR on him. And you could just see the look on the players' faces. I mean, they, they, they had just seen what they thought was their friend die. And, and it, I saw looks on the players' faces I've never seen before. And, and even when they were panned to the analysts, the TV analysts who talked about it, they couldn't hardly talk. And it was shocking. It was hard to watch. It was just shocking to watch people who were paid to talk not really be able to talk. And I think the reason is because everybody was just hit with the reality of the value, how life is valuable. Life is so precious. It's so valuable. And when you seemingly taken out from right in front of you, it causes you to think about what's really important. And they all realized in that moment, football was not important. So much so, much so that they canceled the game, like not even going to play it again. You know, when the NFL starts canceling games, wow, something got their attention. And in addition to that, everybody was talking about praying. Everybody's talking about praying. And one ESPN analyst actually prayed on air, like a, a lengthy prayer. It's like all of a sudden prayer is okay in the NFL and in you know, ESPN and on live TV. Well, when you've come face to face with death, it kind of shakes you to your core. And you say, what do I really believe? And what really matters and what's really important. And I think, once again, at the beginning of a new year, it's good for us to be reminded 
and we're reminded from the book of Ezra, you know, what's, what's really important? What's at the top of the list? What must we do? What's really important? And, and, and I would say answer number one is worship. It's what we were created for. You were created for the purpose of worshiping your Creator. It's what you were saved for. God redeemed you. God the King redeemed you. Why? So you will worship Him. And by the way, it's what we will do for the rest of eternity. We will worship Him. Um, and in case you say, well, yeah, but I mean, this is the Old Testament and there's the temple and there's priests and the vestments and things are different today. I would say, look at the New Testament. Right? Look at the description of the first church in Acts 2, 42-47. What were they doing? What were they giving themselves to? Certainly one of the things was worship. They were meeting daily. They were meeting in the temple. They were worshiping God. And when you read the letters of the apostles to the churches, they just make the assumption that the churches are meeting regularly and worshiping. Paul doesn't tell them to do it because they're just doing it, and he assumes they're doing it. And he tells them what to do while they are doing it. And, and, and he addresses how they are, you know, things they need to do better in their worship. The author of Hebrews, of course, does address this issue of not meeting. He says, let us not neglect to meet together as some in the habit of doing. So here's my point. I want to encourage us as a church body to prioritize corporate worship uh, as we look at the upcoming year, to make worship a priority. Why? Simply because it's what you were created to do. Simply because it's what you were redeemed to do. And it's, it's the reason why the King saves us. He saves us to worship Him. It's, it's priority number one. And that, by the way, is why it's mentioned as the first of our four aspects of our mission statement. We're here to make disciples who do four things. Worship, connect, serve, impact. Worship is number one. It's not coincidental. This is first one. Priority number one. I would say it like this. If you can't do anything else with us as a church at Vista Grande, make sure you're worshiping with us. Worship before you do anything else. Don't do anything else unless you're worshiping. Right? Worship is priority number one. And if you are being prevented from worshiping because you're doing other things, come talk to us because we want to free you up so that you're not neglecting to worship. Right? We don't want you to be serving to such an extent that you're prevented from worshiping. Why? It's not just because we want to have a room full of people, though it's wonderful to have a room full of people. Right? This is glorious. It's wonderful. Thank you for being here. You're already doing what I'm encouraging you to do. You're here worshiping the Lord. And I just want to encourage you to to continue to make it a priority. And of course, I want to point out, we know that the true worship of God doesn't merely happen one hour a week. If worship of God is only happening one hour a week, it's not really worship of God. It's something else. If we're truly worshiping God corporately as a body on Sunday morning, it will lead to lives of worship, worshipful lives throughout the week. And so this brings us to transition to talk about faithful living. Faithful living is an emphasis in this book. We respond to God's faithfulness by living faithfully for Him. Ezra is the author of this book. He doesn't come onto the scene until chapter 7 when he arrives in Jerusalem with a new group of exiles. And when he arrives, he's a Christian, no, he's not a Christian, he's a spiritual leader, a spiritual minister, a priest. And uh, we have a good description of him in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Sort of a summary of what he does, a summary of his ministry. And I would want to say that perhaps God is calling you into ministry to be a minister like Ezra. 
And, and if he is, I think one way you'll know is you'll hear this verse I'm about to read and it'll resonate with you. And you'll say, I want to do that. So perhaps God's calling you to ministry. One way you might know he's calling you into ministry is when I describe Christian ministry like I'm going to describe it using this verse, chapter 7, verse 10, you resonate with it and you say, wow, I, 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 I think I'm, I needed to be doing that. So listen to the verse, chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So notice Ezra does three things. First of all, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, the word of God. That's priority number one. What does God's word say? A faithful Christian minister, priority number one, what does the Bible say? Right? I need a revelation I need the revelation of God to inform how I'm supposed to think about this. So and, and, and in order to know that, you've got to study it. You've got to read it. So priority number one, Christian ministry, studying God's Word. And then number two, look at what he does second. Not only does he study the law, he studies the law to do it. So he does it. He doesn't immediately turn around to teach it. He does it first. And that's crucial. A faithful Christian minister has to do the Word of God before he can instruct others in how to do it. In other words, I have to take the Bible and apply it to myself before I try to help, help you apply it to you. And I think about this every week as I'm preparing messages. I'm thinking to myself, Chris, you've got to let this change you first. You've got to let this step on your toes first. You need to come under this first and be changed by the Word before you stand up and proclaim, Thus says the Lord. Right? Any faithful Christian minister worth his salt is going to allow the Word to minister to him before he turns around to use the Word to minister to others. So step number one, study the Word. Step two, do it. Apply it to yourself. And then three, teach it. So he teaches God's Word. Right? A faithful Christian minister is mostly concerned with what does the Bible say? If, if an issue is kind of unrelated to the Bible, it's like, well, that's a, that's a secondary issue. Hold on to it loosely. Like, we can talk about it. There's important issues to discuss, philosophy of ministry, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, if we're not talking about God's Word, you know, hold on to it loosely. This is, this is life and death. And this is His ministry. He comes to town. He comes to Jerusalem. Ezra comes to Jerusalem, teaching God's Word. And when he does, he's confronted with a particular issue. There's a particular challenge that the people are guilty of. And he has to address it because the, the Word of God addresses real life. It addresses today. It addresses uh, us today. And in, as Ezra came, there was a particular issue that he had to address. And the issue was the people had married women from foreign nations. And it's the nations that God's people were supposed to drive out, but they didn't. Now, I want to be really clear here. The problem was not a racial problem. The problem was not an ethnic problem. And the reason why I know that is because chapter 6, verse 21, suggests that outsiders could convert and come to the faith, people like Rahab. So the problem is not being a different ethnicity than the Jewish people. That's not the problem. The pro it's a religious issue. It's a religious issue that Ezra is addressing. And the religious issue is this. The people are marrying other people, women, who have foreign gods, and that's going to lead them to also abandon God and go worship foreign gods. They're going to follow the pattern of Solomon. That's the problem. You marry someone who worships foreign god, you marry someone who doesn't worship the one true and living God, 
And it is, a, it is a pattern, it's a common pattern. Your heart will be led astray from God to the foreign gods. And so Ezra addresses it. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. I just want to point out, I would never choose this topic to preach on. This topic chose us because we're going book by book, and this is the, the, the topic in Ezra. And the problem is, once again, they've married foreign women who have foreign gods. The solution, according to verse 3, is they say we're going to put away all of these wives. So what that seems to suggest, or what it seems to imply, is that they're saying the solution is divorce. And that raises a huge question for us. How are we supposed to think about this? Let me point out a couple of, make a couple of responses, a couple of observations. Number one, some people have argued that the word that's translated marriage here, in Hebrew it's Yoseb, the word that's translated marriage might not technically mean legal marriage. Like they may not be legally married. You say, well, that'd be awfully convenient. Well, here, here's why people say this. This is not the normal word for marriage that's used. Uh, this is a word that's only used a handful of times, and when it's used, it's only used in Ezra and Nehemiah. So it leaves a little bit of question. What is this word? What does Yosef mean? And some people say, well, one connotation can mean to dwell. So maybe the issue that he's addressing here is this issue of sort of cohabitation. They're cohabitating with these foreign women, and they're calling, he's calling them to separate and to not cohabitate. So it's possible that's one, that's one take on this. I think it's a legitimate possibility. But I also want to point out, even if what's happening here is some kind of a legal marriage, we still need to recognize as Christians, this is not prescriptive telling us what to do. It is descriptive describing what happened and what they did. And it's important to always distinguish the two. Is this describing or is it prescribing? Do we have a text in the Bible that prescribes for us what we should do in the event that, that I'm married to an unbeliever or you're married to an unbeliever? Do we have a prescriptive text that prescribes and tells us what to do? And the answer is, yes, we do. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 14 says, if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, you're supposed to stay in that marriage. You're not supposed to divorce your spouse on the grounds that he or she is not a believer. So the point I'm making here is you can't use this story from Ezra as justification for divorcing your spouse because he or she is not a believer. All right? But, but don't forget, don't, don't miss the main point of the story. What's the main point of this story? God's people messed up big time when they were confronted by the word from Ezra. They repented, they confessed, they wept, they mourned. And then they got up and they took radical action to be faithful. They were willing to be faithful, to take radical changes, 
to live faithfully for God. And, and I think that's the main point for us here this morning. I think we need to consider at the beginning of a year what might God be calling us to do that might be a little difficult, might be a little painful, but, but it might be a little radical. But what does it look like for, what, what is God calling you to do to live faithfully for Him? Perhaps it means giving something up. For God's people in this time, it meant giving something up. Maybe for you it means giving up a relationship that's unhealthy, that's toxic. A relationship with an unbeliever. Once again, I'm not talking to those of you who are married. I'm talking to those of you who may be cohabitating with someone that you shouldn't be. And maybe God's word for you this morning is you need to end that relationship. You need to get out of that cohabitating relationship. Perhaps God is calling you to give up. There's a certain habit. Maybe it's an addiction. And you know deep down you need to. And perhaps God's word, God's spirit is stirring you up to realize this morning, I, I really do need to put this to death, put to death this addiction, this habit. Or maybe for you, it's just something you're just giving too much time and energy and money toward. I don't even know what it is. It may be a good thing, but you know deep down you're giving a little too much time, a little too much energy, a little too much money. And maybe for you, you just need to give a little less. I don't know how God is working in you, but, but, but I believe He's calling us all. There's something that He's calling us to, to, to put aside Faithfulness involves putting aside certain things. And sometimes faithfulness means taking on certain things. Maybe God is calling you to be faithful to make worship a priority this year. Say, I'm going to set aside Sunday morning corporately worship with God's people. And I'm going to be there unless, of course, I'm sick or just can't be. We, we understand providence hinders this. But, 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 but the question is, are you making it a priority? Maybe God's calling you to make it a priority. Maybe God's calling you to make reading His Word a priority. See, I don't know where to start. Well, here's a good place to start. Read with us as a church. Next week, we're going to read the book of Nehemiah and go through the book of Nehemiah. So this week, you could read Nehemiah preparing for next week. Or maybe God's just calling you to take the next step at Vista Grande. Get connected with that small group, men's ministry, Sunday school class, women's ministry. Maybe God's calling you to take the next step, start serving in an area of ministry. It's not always easy, but... But here's the point. God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. God was faithful, you know, from he, 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 even though it involved 70 years of exile, even though it involved 20 years of waiting for the temple, God was ultimately faithful, right? And uh, Ezra says, I just can't believe you guys are already back at square one. You know, you've just seen God work. You come back, return to the land, it's like, let's start over, fresh start, and all of a sudden they're just back at square one. They sinned again. And Ezra says, I just can't believe it. I can't believe And I really can't believe the faithfulness of God. Here's God continuing to be faithful to us, even though we continue again and again and again to be unfaithful to Him. And we're reminded once again of the need for something more. Something more is needed. Having the land, not enough. Having the altar, not enough. Having the temple, not enough. Having a great faithful leader like Ezra, not enough. Having God work this incredible miracle, change the heart of a pagan king so that the pagan king says, go back and build God's temple. Wow. Even that, not enough. Something more is needed, and God is going to provide something more. About 500 years later, He's going to provide the sacrifice that's going to end all sacrifices. He's going to give His Son. 
And he's going to give his son who's going to sacrifice himself so that you and I don't have to go to the altar in Jerusalem to make a sacrifice to worship God. We can worship him right where we are because Jesus is the ultimate lamb. He's the altar. He's the priest. And he was faithful for us even when we were unfaithful to him. And God has given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. He's faithful even when we're not. And if that causes you to say, oh, wow, he's faithful even when I'm not, therefore I don't have to be faithful, you don't really get what we're saying here. You don't get the gospel, right? If you get it, if you get what God's done for you, he's given you everything you need in Jesus Christ. He's faithful to you even when you're unfaithful. If you get that, you'll know it because you'll say, I can't help but want to respond with faithful worship. Faithful worship once a week and faithful worship throughout the week. I can't help but want to respond with faithful living. Show me what I need to crucify. Show me what I need to take on. He's worth it. Right? And, and, and there's no better time than right now, the beginning of a year, to, to come under God's Word, be reminded of your unfaithfulness, and for me to be reminded of my unfaithfulness. And don't let it drive you to despair, because there's good news. God has provided everything you need, even in your unfaithfulness. Jesus was faithful even when you're not. Make sure you go to Him. If you have Him, you have everything you need. Go to Jesus. Trust on Him. Let's pray.